evidence all around that we live in a religiously confused society. Um, <laughs> uh, don't, you don't have to look too far. There are, of course, extreme examples. I actually I read and then looked it up to make sure that, you know, this person I was reading wasn't making it up. There's actually a, a church, a religion that's based on the 1970s TV show, The Partridge Family. If you don't believe me, look it up. And you laugh as opposed to crying. Uh, they actually, this, this whole concept, it is called the Partridge Family Temple. And the whole idea behind the church is it's centered on the show. It celebrates, uh, first of all, the music of the show. Uh, so I guess that's the worship music that they use. It holds the characters in high esteem. And it was created in 1988 under the philosophy that fun is the law. But it doesn't stop there. It's de devoted to spreading the message that life is a reality TV show and that God is eating a TV dinner while watching the reality TV show. Uh, if that's not uh, confused, I don't know what is. Um, to them, you know, the characters are in high esteem. Well, they worship David Cassidy. He's like, you know, their savior, so to speak. Um, I think this is probably somebody's attempt at humor, I hope. That that's, I don't hope, but I mean, that's the only explanation I could think of. But I mean, you don't have to look far to see extreme examples of, of confusion. I mean, there have been tragic examples of that in terms of, of cults and people leading others to their death. I could go on and on about different examples. We definitely live in a day and time where what's real and what's not, what's true and what's not is, is muddied, is unclear. And uh, it seems in some ways to be getting worse all of the time. Uh, in our world, two plus two doesn't always equal four. Um, it depends on where you are and who you are and how you want to look at two and two and four and everything involved, right? I mean, it's, it's subject uh, to the person in terms of what our world accepts as true and false. All beliefs are considered to be equal, which is crazy. You know, if I say this table is made of cheese and I believe that, and you say it's made of wood, both of those beliefs are not equally valid, right? One's true, one's not, but that's the idea that we're, we are forced to accept or attempted uh, to be forced to accept. Uh, our world, you know, truth is relative. It's not, it's not black and white. You know, in even just as recent as a few decades ago, Christianity was generational in the sense that uh, children were more likely to accept the, to the faith of their parents, to make it their own, generation after generation after generation. But somewhere along the, the line, people began to ask why. And it's okay to ask questions. We should be curious. But it turned into a serious form of skepticism to where now uh, people don't accept the Bible as being the truth. Christianity as being accurate. Uh, and we have more and more a growing class of skeptics in our world. This, this group of nuns that we have now that claim no belief or no affiliation, no allegiance to any religion, any God, uh, little g or big G, uh, and, and just classify themselves as having no beliefs whatsoever. People today ask why, and we are living in a new age of skeptics, cultural characteristics that we have, independence, uh, the debate, you know, the independence, individuality, all of these have kind of, of strengthened or enhanced this, these thoughts and new ideas that contradict Christianity altogether and what we believe to be right and wrong and true and, 
and, and God's word. Today, anything goes. And so how, in the midst of this culture, can we as Christians believe and then say that our way is right? You know, with a, a growing number of skeptics arguing against our beliefs, how can we be confident that what we believe is true? Well, I, I want to show you today that not only can we, we should do that. Uh, in love, communicate very clearly that our beliefs are accurate and right because they are based on the eternal and accurate and living Word of God and who He is as the Word, Jesus Christ. And so we can believe that. You know, almost everyone, a problem that we have is that almost everyone in our culture believes that Jesus existed. You're not going to find, you're going to find very few people that believe that He is not, was not an actual person that existed in the past. There's just too many uh, biblical and extra biblical sources to prove that he actually walked this earth, that he was a human being that lived. The problem is that when you try to convince people to believe that he was God, I mean, that's where, you know, a lot of people believe he existed. He was a good teacher, a good man, whatever. But that, that the fact that he's God, that's where you're going to lose a whole lot of people. All right. People rarely doubt Jesus' existence, but they do question his divinity. They question whether or not he was really God. And that's, that's where we are going to be separated from a whole lot of folks because you either believe that he is or you don't. He either is God or he's not. And Jesus answers this question himself with the sixth I am statement. That's what we'll be looking at today in John chapter 14. In this, this series, we've looked at the I am statements of Jesus. Jesus spent the first part of John and then even after the, the first couple of I am statements showing his, who he was by his miracles. And then he begins to declare who he is through these I am statements. And the I am statements of Jesus declare who he is and who he is drastically changes who we are. If we're going to accept who he is as the I am, the I am statements, as the I am then that's going to change who we are because he's making a clear statement by labeling himself, I am, as being the God of the Old Testament. It's the God of the New Testament saying, I am the same God of the Old Testament. And so you have to make a decision. You're either going to accept that or you're going to not accept that because there's no question. And there wouldn't have been any question of those who knew the scripture and knew and was, were listening to Jesus. There were no question among those people what he was claiming here. He's claiming to be God. And so by doing that, who he is in all of these statements, who he is as the way, the truth, and the life, the sixth I am statement will drastically change if we accept it, who we are. Greg Matt says the I am changes who I am, plain and simple if you accept it. And so in John chapter 14, we're going to see that Jesus claims with unwavering assurance his authority as the Son of God, very clearly leaving no room for, for doubt that he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father except by him. Very clear. There's no, no room for wiggle there. There's no leeway. He's very clear, and we can, he claims that with authority, and we can live with that comfort, that assurance, and that authority. We can have the same confidence believing that he is the way, the truth, and the life as Jesus did when he stated 
He is the way, the truth, and the life. It's possible to stand up against opposing viewpoints and to do it in love, but to do it with conviction, to do it firmly, and to do it without wavering in our doubt and our belief, not having doubt and stating that, that this is accurate. We can do that and we can have the confidence that it takes to be able to do that if we have a relationship with Christ. It seems that today the only belief that's not tolerated is the belief that Jesus is the only way. I mean, you can believe whatever you want. You can go to the Partridge Family Temple. But if you say that Jesus is the only way and there is no other, suddenly you are uh, exclusive and offensive and all of these characteristics, all these titles that we get. But not only is that what is accurate, it is also what we should believe and what we should teach. So when Jesus says he's the way, the truth, and the life, what is he really saying? What's involved in that? That's what we're going to look at today. And the first thing that he's saying is that he is exclusively the way. Let's, let's just, let's not re- leave any room here again for doubt, any room for questioning. He is exclusively the only way. We've seen in this series, Jesus makes clear statements about his identity all through the I am statements. He's saying something about who he is as God, his character, and who he is, his attributes. They cause the stir then and they cause the stir now. I mean, this, this statement, probably more than any other, uh, is going to cause a stir even today. But they also are stepping stones upon which you and I build our faith and our confidence and our assurance uh, that, that, you know, to believe that he really is the son of God. In John 14, we see Jesus having a conversation with his disciples. It's uh, the upper room discourse, and he's, he's trying to prepare them. He's trying to comfort them. But he's also trying to prepare them for what's coming. And, and this is not in your notes. So turn, turn to John chapter, or it's not on the PowerPoint either. Turn to John chapter 14, if you would. I want to read the first four verses before we get into the I am statement today. He's comforting them with the thought, the disciples with the thought that eternity awaits them. In verse 1, your heart must not be troubled or let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If not, I would have told you. I'm going away to prepare a place for you. If I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come back and receive you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. You know the way that I'm going, he says. So he's comforting them. I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm going to come back and receive you. I'm not going to abandon you. You're going to be with me for all of eternity. He's trying to comfort them. And he's also preparing them with these statements for what's about to come, which is his death on the cross. He's trying to, trying to prepare them uh, for what's about to happen. But Thomas, as I'm sure they all were, but Thomas spoke up. They, he was confused by this, by what Jesus was saying. And he says in verse 5, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? What he's saying is, is how can we know? Give us a map. Give us directions. uh, Give us turn-by-turn instructions how to get there. We don't know the way to where you're going. Why do you say we know the way? You haven't given us instructions yet. And it's in this context that Jesus answers Thomas' questions with these words in verse 6. Thomas says, I don't know the way. And Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you also know my Father. Why? Because he and the Father are one, which he states in other areas as well. From now on, 
you do know him and have seen him. That's a bold statement. Can we all agree on that? I mean, there's no room for doubt there. So to say that Jesus is a good person, I don't buy that if he's not God. He's either a lunatic or he's God. He's either a liar or he's God. Because right there, he's already stated with, I am the door, I am the good shepherd, I am the father, our one. Now he's saying, if you want to get to heaven, you've got to go through me. There is no other way. Plain and simple. So either we accept that or we don't. And there's, there's no middle ground there. And so this is a bold statement. He claims to be the way, the truth, and the life. And the way here literally means in the text, it's the road, it's the path that you have to follow to get to your destination. There's no other path. It's the path that you have to follow. He's not a way. He's not a truth. He's the way and the truth, plain and simple. And either we accept that or we deny that. You have to, if you're going to be a follower of Christ, you have to come to terms with this. You have to, you, you can't say, yeah, I'm going to believe in Jesus, but you believe in whatever way you want and you'll get there too. We'll, we'll meet at the end. No, no, you can't. You can't, you can't accept Jesus and accept that there are many paths to God, which our world, our culture tries to convince us. Of. Millions of people believe something completely different as a matter of fact. And many are convinced that they are right. So how can we be convinced that we're right? How can we stay? Isn't it arrogant to say that? Isn't it unloving to say that? That's what you're going to hear, right? I mean, you've probably heard that before. I mean, isn't it just uh, uh, snobby and exclusive to say that we, we're the only ones that are right? The reality is it's not you and I that are right. It's Jesus and what he says. It's not me that lays down these rules. It's God's word that, that states this. It's he, he himself who states this. But those are the questions, right? I mean, isn't it arrogant? Isn't it unloving? Isn't it exclusive to say these things? It may, when you hear that statement, when I say it, it may even make you squirm a little bit because you know what our culture believes and you know what, what relativism is and all of that. And so if we're honest, on some level, it probably does make us just a little bit uncomfortable when we, when we stay because we're picturing in our minds saying that to somebody that we care about who doesn't believe the same thing because we don't want them to have their feelings hurt. We don't want to isolate them. And that's all born in compassion and love. But the reality is, if we truly do love them, we will tell them the truth. But, but is it, isn't it uncaring? Isn't it unloving? That's the question that we have to ask, because again, so many people believe otherwise. But if we take a step back, can we be convinced? If we take a step back, there are biblical footholds on which to stand that we can gain a firm grip, a firm foundation that reinforce this and give us reason to know for certain that what Jesus is saying here is true. One is that Jesus perfectly fulfilled all the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah. I mean, completely. The Old Testament, it contains story after story of God's work leading. It is a story in and of itself of God's word leading up to Jesus. The prophets described his birth the Savior's birth, his life, his death, his resurrection in detail, and Jesus matches every one of those descriptions. Don't have time for it today, but I've got a chart that I can give you if you want to see how all of the prophecies match up. Prophecy after prophecy after prophecy. When the Messiah appeared, he was exactly, Jesus was exactly as he had been prophesied. 
The prophets, the, the amazing thing, spoke these words a long time before Jesus was born. So when he was born of the Virgin Mary in Bethlehem, Jesus begins fulfilling every single prophecy about the Messiah. Now, I'm not a numbers guy, and I always hesitate when I share numbers, so I'm just going to read this so that hopefully I don't get it wrong, all right? But statistics say, people have actually looked into this and studied this. Statistics say that there is a one in 100 million billion, I think that's 17 zeros, y'all can check me later, all right? One and now think about that, one in 100, not just million, but million, billion chance that one person would fulfill even eight prophecies. Just eight. Guess how many Jesus fulfilled? 300. One in 100 million billion that you would fulfill eight, and Jesus fulfills 300. Tell me that's coincidence. It can't be. There's no way that's coincidence. The I am statements, I mean, Jesus... Jesus isn't limited to statistics, right? I mean, he is be, uh, beyond human ability, human reason, human calculating, and so we shouldn't be surprised. But that's just, don't you know that God did that just so we, just for us, so we could have greater confidence looking back? Because he knew that one day somebody was going to sit down and do all that math that I can't do and come up with that statistic so you and I could sit here, among others, in this room today and look at that and go, well, of course that has to be right. There's no way that could be a coincidence. That is further proof that we can believe what Jesus says. He didn't have to do that. We should just accept it because he said it, but that's further proof that Jesus is who he says that he is. The I am statements just themselves are fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Jesus is claiming to be who the prophet said he would be. Also, Jesus claims to be God in at least three ways. Look at this. Verse 7 of John 14, he's, Jesus is saying, He and the Father are one. If you know me, you will also know my Father. From now on, you, don't, you do know him and have seen him. So he's, he's emphasizing his authority as God here. But then he also says, if you back up to John chapter 10, verse 30 and 31, he says it plain and simple, the Father and I are one. And how did the Jews respond? They wanted to stone him. Because he, I mean, it was clear what he was saying, and it should be to us. He also declares that he's eternal and predate, he, he stated that he predated Abraham, which, as you would expect, doesn't sit well, too well with some of his listeners, some of the Jewish people. John chapter 8, verse 57, the Jews replied, aren't, you aren't 50 years old yet, and yet you've seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, I assure you, before Abraham was, I am. There again, I am. And what's their response? They want to stone him because it's clear to them and should be to us, he's saying he's God, plain and simple. He and the Father are one. He is the God of the New Testament, is the God of the Old, Old Testament as well. That's what he's saying. Jesus was born, but he was never created. He's eternal. Jesus is eternal. He's God. It's mind-blowing, right? Think about it too long and your brain will explode and ooze out your ears. All right? But it's the truth, nonetheless, and we have to accept that by faith. He was born but not created. He is the creator, as a matter of fact. Jesus also received worship from his followers, showing that he was equal to God the Father, and it bothered some people. But if you look, Paul and Barnabas, Peter, Acts 14, Acts 10, they, they refused to accept worship because they knew they weren't God. But Jesus, when, in Matthew chapter 14, Jesus and Peter get back in the boat. And what did the disciples do? Those who were, who were in the boat worshiped him saying, truly you are the son of God. He didn't stop them 
Because they were telling the truth. He is God. Right after Jesus' ascension to heaven, we read in Luke chapter 24, verse 52, after worshiping him, they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. They worshiped him. He didn't stop them. Why? Because he's God. He's worthy of worship. He wasn't just a human who was a good teacher. No. Again, you know, when we hear these claims, when we read about his miracles, we have two options. He's either crazy, a liar, or he's God and he's telling the truth. There's no middle ground. He fulfilled prophecy. He declared himself to be God. He welcomed worship. So either he's God or he's not. You got to take one side or the other. You can't take some middle road or some other road around. He's either God or he's not. And we can believe that and we can have confidence in that. But the greatest evidence of all, the greatest proof that we can believe that Jesus is who he says he is, is the empty tomb. The resurrection, well, isn't, couldn't they have made that up? Couldn't that be a lie? Well, not if you really look at the evidence. I mean, three days after Jesus, he rose from the grave. Now, you got to think about what's going on here. Jesus, as I've shown you, has openly declared to be God. The Jews don't want to believe that, most of them. The Roman authorities know that the Messiah, the prophecy, is that he'll take over the government, overthrow the government. They know that if the Jews rally around him, that they're going to be in trouble. So they are desperate to make sure, that, that, to prove that he's not God or that he's not the Messiah, right? And so they, they, take, they go to great measures to make sure that nobody steals that body to claim that he's alive. They put a gigantic stone over the, the opening of the tomb that no one could move. And then they go beyond that to post guards in front of the tomb who would and probably did lose their lives if the body disappears. And, and so great links they go to to make sure this body doesn't disappear. Well, three days later, what happens? There's no body in the tomb. No body, no body in the tomb. So you think about that. I mean, it, it's not, it wouldn't have been an easy task for those 11 disciples just to sneak in in the middle of the night and take him and leave without the guards killing them. Okay. I mean, that, so you look at all of that. So just the fact that he's gone, you know, if, if the Romans had only been able, think about this too. If the Romans had only been able to produce a body, Christianity would have fizzled before it ever got started. If only but they weren't able to do that. Why? Because he wasn't there. He was alive, plain and simple. And the reality is the foundation of our faith, because without this, there is no Christianity, okay? The foundation of our faith is the fact that Jesus is God. He died, he was buried, and he rose again. He's alive today. He's not dead. He's not in a tomb. We serve a living Savior. There was nobody in the tomb. He's alive. This, the disciples would later give their lives. John's the only one that died of old age, according to tradition. And so what, why would those guys become martyrs for something that was a lie? Well, they wouldn't. Not all of them. I mean, one of them would have said, you know what? I'm out. I'm tapping out. <laughs> no, nope. nobody's going to burn me at the stake or, you know, you know crucify me. I, I'm, no, I'm done. Somebody. And even John, I mean, he was poisoned, right? I mean, he was tortured. So, I mean, these guys would not have done that for a lie, just to cover up a lie. No, the tomb was empty. Jesus is alive. He was raised from the dead, and that is further proof. So when you look at all of the evidence, it is perfectly reasonable, logical. Yes, there's faith. We have to believe in things we can't see and that we can't 
prove physically, but there's plenty of evidence to support it too. It's not a simple man's faith. It is not something that you just have to accept without any proof whatsoever. There's plenty of evidence. It is logical to believe what Jesus claimed. And then, of course, you've got the 500 people that saw him afterwards. You know, people usually don't hallucinate in groups without some sort of drug involved. (laughs) 500 people aren't going to claim that they saw a person who was alive that, that was not really alive. And again, just, just further evidence, Jesus' bold statement, he claims to be the way, the truth, and the life. It's proven, proven. Yes, I said proven by God's word. It's proven. And we can have confidence that Jesus is who he says he is. Next, Jesus, when he's saying this, he's saying he's sufficiently the way. His sacrifice, his death, his burial, his resurrection is sufficient to get us to the Father. In John 14, 6, he claims without exception to be the way, the truth, and the life. In the original language here, there's more going on than just what, what we read in the English translation, okay? It's not just a one, two, three listing. It's, it's a cyclical statement. They all build, they're all connected to each other. One, one statement builds on the previous statement. He's not just saying that A, I'm the way, B, I'm the truth, and C, I'm the light. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, I'm the way because I am the truth and because I am the life. I'm the way to the Father because I am the true manifestation, the revelation of the Father. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. I am the way because I am the revelation of the Father, and I'm the way because I alone have the power to give eternal life. R.C. Sproul broke that down. He's saying, I am the way because I'm God, because I am willing to pay the price for your sins, and I am going to, and he has, looking back for us, right? He's saying he's our payment. The only way he can be the way is if he has the power to give eternal life. No man could make this sacrifice, but he did. He made the sacrifice for our sins. We've sinned against an eternal God, and there are eternal consequences for that sin. But God, in his love, sent his son Jesus, God himself, to to be the perfect sacrifice for our sins. And so God, who is holy and separate and who cannot allow sin into his presence, how is he able to allow us into his presence? Well, he has to pay the price for our sins, or we don't get to get into his presence. And so he said, I'm willing to do that, and he did that. And he became flesh, the word became flesh, it dwelt among us, he did. And Jesus, as the way, the truth, and the life, provides a way through his death, through his sacrifice, through his resurrection, for us to, to, when we die, to be resurrected and to spend eternity in heaven with God the Father and to communicate with God the Father through Christ now. The holy and eternal Christ paid the debt for us. Think about it this way. There's only one way for human beings to be cleansed of the filth of sin, and it is filth, and that's through Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying here. There's only one way, but, but thankfully for us, he is willing to provide that way. He is willing to be that way. You know, it can't be through good deeds. You know, a lot of people believe that, hey, if I'm just good enough, right? I, you know, if I just do enough good things, I get to the end of life, God will calculate the good and bad. Hopefully my good will outweigh my bad. That's probably the most common belief about how to get to heaven. But it can't be that way. That's like, you know, I, I, I compare that to like uh, uh, putting money in a parking meter. 
When you're in a meeting or you go in, you think, okay, if I was going to last about two hours. Turns out that meeting lasts about three hours. And you're at, you're at an hour and 50 minutes. And you know, I got to get outside and feed that meter or else I'm going to be towed or get a ticket or something, right? Time's running out. Well, that's kind of how it is if you're thinking about getting into heaven by good deeds and your good deeds outweighing your bad. Well, today, maybe I was really bad. So I got to go feed the meter. I got to go, I got to go put in some more good deeds because, you know, at the end of the day, my meter might have run out. That's basically what we're saying there by good deeds is that it's based on what I can do to get into heaven. And man, I I wouldn't want to live that way because, you know, at the end of my life, there's a good chance. You know, I try to be a good person, but there's a good chance that my meter may not be full enough if I depend on only my own ability. But thankfully, salvation is by grace through faith and it's grace. It's a gift. We can't, if we could get saved on our own strength, then we wouldn't have needed Christ. We wouldn't have needed Jesus. But man is not able to do that. We can't do that on our own. But his payment, not only does he pay, but because he pays, it's once for all. One of the reasons we believe in and eternal security, one of the reasons we believe in once saved, always saved, is because God, if he's not sufficient enough to wipe out all my sins for all time, then nobody is. And he says, I'm the way. And he says he is sufficient. His grace is sufficient. We don't have to worry about the meter running out of time. One of the incredible qualities of Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life is that, yes, he's God, he's holy, he's separate, but he's also very personal. You know, it'd be one thing if God was distant and he said, okay, I'm going to save you, but you're on your own from here on out. You got to figure it out on your own. He didn't have to save us. So, you know, you could argue he'd be justified in doing that. But no, God is personal. He created us for his glory, but he also created us for relationship. Sin severed that relationship. And so one of the things that Jesus wants to do, that God wants to do and does through salvation is provide a way for us to be reconnected with him. And for that relationship to be restored, God is personal. He is intimately involved, wants to be intimately involved in every detail of your life. And when you think about that, the God of the universe wanting to be involved in your life, that, that should just floor you. It should humble us. We should be filled with gratitude and a desire to make sure that that happens because we do have a part in that. We, we may not have a part in saving ourselves, and we don't. But we do have a part in growing in Christ and having a, a, a healthy relationship with Christ. We have to spend time with him and in his word. But Jesus is personal. Through Christ, our personal relationship with God is possible. He desires relationship, not just spiritual action, not just going through the motions. He wants to talk with us as friend. You may have heard this story before with this lady by the name of Mamie Adams. She was an elderly lady. She went to the post office frequently. She uh, was uh, lived by herself. She went to the post office to the point to where everybody there got to know her and got to know about her. And they knew her coming in. They'd talk with her and all this sort of stuff. Well, it was Christmas time. And she goes into the post office and she's waiting in a long line to buy some stamps. Well, somebody in line says, hey, you know, you can go right over there. There's no line. Use that stamp machine to get you some stamps. You can get them. She said, yeah, but the stamp machine won't ask me about my arthritis. See, for her, it was about relationship, not just getting something. You know, she wanted that interaction. And, and, you know, you may be a people person, you may not. Okay, you may be an extrovert, you may be an introvert, but you were created to have a relationship with people and with your creator, most of all. We have within us this deep desire, this void that will not be filled with anything else other 
than the presence of your creator, your savior, inside of you and a healthy relationship with him. Because even as a believer, yes, you can have salvation and still feel pointless and empty if you're not growing in Christ and you don't have a relationship with him. Jesus is personal and desires a relationship with you and offers a personal relationship with everyone. And it doesn't even matter your background, by the way, your strengths, your weaknesses, and even if other people don't consider you to be important. I mean, you think about who Jesus used, a bunch of fishermen and a mix of others, right, that that society considered to be unimportant. And he took them where they were and made them what they became because they depended on him, because they grew in him, and because they allowed him to work through them. They, they were filled so much with his spirit and his ability, Christ's ability, that, and confidence that it amazed the religious leaders of the day. Look at Acts chapter 4, verse 13. When they observed the boldness of Peter and John and realized that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and recognized that they had been filled with Jesus. It was so evident. They were so full of Jesus that everybody around them could see it. That's how how close they were with their Savior, how sanctified they were becoming through him working through them. You and I can have that same thing, by the way, to be so full of confidence. You want to know how to, how to be confident that what Jesus is saying is true here and to, to communicate that with love and confidence to others? You've got to be filled with the Spirit of God to the point that where it's undeniable that you are a child of the Savior, that you are filled with His Spirit, that you are equipped by Him, that you're able to do things that are only explained by the fact that it's the power of God working in and through you. you gotta, you've got to have a relationship with Christ, but you can. Jesus changes lives, and He can do it with anyone, anywhere, anybody. He is the way, the truth, and the life for all who call on His name. He is exclusively the way, He is sufficiently the way, and He is definitively the way kind of reinforce what we've just said. If we're honest, Jesus' statement, again, it makes us a little nervous because we know our culture. And we know that people are going to come at us with every argument to the contrary. Every argument, they, some of them are, are pretty convincing if you don't know the truth. Our world is one without absolutes. Truth is relative, right? You can believe what you want. There's no such thing as God-given truth. How dare you set, you set my truth for me? You hear the phrase all the time, you find your truth. Well, we can believe that. We can say that in, a, in an effort to try to make people feel better about where they are, you know, to spare them maybe some un- discomfort, some embarrassment in the present. But if we do that, we really don't care about their souls. The culture tells us it's up to me to determine what's true. So when Jesus says, I'm exclusively and definitively the way, the truth, and life, there is no other way to the Father except through me, people get offended. So we need to look closely at it. Culture says there's no absolute truth, but think about that. Stating that there's no absolute truth is an absolute statement. So that contradicts the argument. You've got to believe that statement to believe that there's no absolute truth, Right? And what's funny is, is in our society, we accept absolutes all the time. You know, we do accept that two plus two equals four, three plus three equals six in terms of math. You know, in science, we accept the law of gravity. If you don't believe me, climb up in your chair and fall and see if you don't hit the ground. We accept the law of gravity and other laws. 
Unwritten traffic laws, right? Written traffic laws, unwritten rules, but traffic laws. I mean, we accept that you're supposed to stop on red. Now, whether you do that or not, you know, some people have a little trouble with that. You stop on red, you go on green, and, and you're supposed to slow down on yellow, not speed up. <laughs> but we accept whether we obey them or not, we accept that it's right, correct? But we accept unwritten rules that you're supposed to stand in line. You go somewhere and you go to a fast food place and you jump the line, what's going to happen? You, you might get, if you can get in nowadays, I mean, if you can eat inside, that's a different question. But you, we accept unwritten rules. And so we have no problem with absolutes all over. It's just when you start talking about Jesus Christ and absolutes in terms of what I believe religiously, that's when people start to get uncomfortable. Don't tell me what to believe. Don't tell me what's right and wrong. You don't have the right to tell me. I'm going to obey the laws, and I'm going to obey the laws of gravity, the laws of science. I'm going to obey math, but don't tell me what's right and wrong spiritually and, and what to believe and what not to believe. That's when people start to object. But the reality is society crumbles without absolutes, and it really crumbles without absolute truth, real truth. Two things, absolute truth does exist, and it can be found in the Bible. Put it another way, absolute truth, God is absolute truth, and we discover it through Jesus Christ and his word. He is the word. So if you want absolute truth, this is where you look. I may not understand all of it, but I know that it's true, and I accept it as true. It is God's standard for life. The Gospel of John is filled with declarations that point to this living truth. Look at John chapter 4, verse 23. An hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. Caleb talked about that a few weeks ago, worshiping in spirit and in truth. There is truth. John eight thirty two. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Jesus, is, truth is a person, not an idea or a concept. It's Christ. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. John 14, 6, our verse for today. No one comes to the Father except through me. John 16, verses 12 and 13. I still have many things to tell you, but you can't bear them now when the spirit of truth comes. It's still him. It's the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. We can know the truth because the spirit shows us the truth, reveals the truth to us. He will not speak on his own, but he will speak whatever he hears. He will also declare to you what is to come. And Jesus praying for the disciples, John 17, 17, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. And then John 18, 38 through 39, even Pilate says, what is truth? He goes on after this, he said, uh, he, after he said this, he went out to the Jews and told them, I find no grounds for charging. Even Pilate could see, you know, that he wasn't doing anything wrong that he was telling the truth, that he was who he said he was, whether he believed it, you know, inside or not, in his heart. You have a custom that I'll release one prisoner to you at the Passover, so, who do, you, so do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? You know, what is truth? Pilate asked that question. That's what our world's asking, right? That's what we've all asked. Maybe you're asking that today. Well, I can answer it for you very plain, simple, very clear. Three words. Jesus is truth. There you go. If you want to know the truth, you've got to know Christ. You've got to have a relationship with him. Because even with even you can know the Bible, but without Jesus in your life, you won't you won't know all there is to know. 
You can know the facts, but not know it in a way that changes your life, that transforms your life. You know, I take great comfort in that, that phrase, Jesus is the truth, because virtually every biblical principle is refuted, contradicted somewhere in our culture. You don't have to look far. And so I take great comfort in my life knowing that I can know the truth. And the truth is not an idea, it's not a concept, it's a person. It's Jesus, it's my Savior, it's my Creator. And He wants a relationship with me. He wants a relationship with you. How do you know it's true? You go to the source. You go to the source of truth. You go to the truth Himself. That's how you know the truth. To the one who is the source, the embodiment of truth is Jesus Christ. He is the incarnation of truth itself. I mean, he is God. And he says also, I'm the life. And in doing this, he's, he's, he's saying the same thing we visited with, I'm the good shepherd, I'm the resurrection. Life itself would be impossible apart from Jesus Christ. Not only the beginning of life and life as it exists in the physical realm, but spiritual life is impossible apart from Jesus Christ. He is the life. That's what he's saying. There's no life at all apart from him. And Jesus is saying this to his disciples. Again, they're, they're confused. They're, they're, it's after the Lord's Supper. They're confused. He's trying to prepare them. He's trying to comfort them. And he's telling them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our faith has been tested from every angle, and it will be tested in the future. You're going to be tested, and it's going to continue to intensify, may even developing into persecution in our nation. Uh, we, we are going to be tested, but our faith it has been for centuries, and it will continue to be, but it has stood and will stand and continue to stand because it's based on truth. It's based on the living God, the one and only living God. It will stand the test of time. It's based on the truth that, is, that, that comes from who God is and his absolute authority. And as we grow in confidence, we're equipped to defend our faith and rest in Christ. We can be comforted, we can have assurance, and we can be equipped. Now, I brought my, my keys with me today. I've got way too many keys. Would you all agree with that? Some of these aren't even good anymore, but I can't remember which ones are good and which ones aren't. So I, I don't want to throw any away. You know, I used, my key ring used to have like three keys on it, but I've got, I've got my truck key, my nasty truck. I've got my truck key. I've got, uh, I think this is a key to the little house, the mission house, which is now the youth house. Uh, a key to my house currently, but I always use my garage door open. I don't ever use the key, so I'm not even sure which one that is. I'd have to try all of these to get to it, which would take a while. So um, I've also got a padlock key here, and uh, this is another one of those keys I have no idea. So if y'all, it may be a church key, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> so I have no, I mean, I've got all these keys that do different things, right? So if I get in my truck and I try to use my padlock key, because mine, you still got to use a key. Our van is keyless, but you still got to have that, that fob, right? If you know it's not in the car, it's not going to work. But if I get in my truck and try to use my padlock key to crank my truck, what's probably going to happen? It may fit in there, but if I, if I crank down hard enough, what's going to happen? It's going to break it off. You know how I know that? I've done that before. Not, not in my car, but in other locks, thinking... This has got to be the right one. Or trying a key that, hey, maybe I can't, I don't have my key, so let me try another one. And then before you know it, you break it. Or if I try my truck key to get into my house, what's going to happen? Chances are it's not going to fit in there anyway. So, or if I get another key that 
It looks like this. Maybe it's even cut like this, but it's missing the little computer chip that costs you, what, like $400 or something like that. What's going to happen? It's not going to work. You got to have, what do you, if I'm going to go outside and crank my truck, it's actually at home, okay? But if I'm going to go home and I'm going to crank my truck, what do I need to do that? I've got to have not just a key, but what? I've got to have the right key. So what we've known about keys for years, why do we have so much trouble accepting that about our Savior, about Jesus, about God who created the universe and everything in it is sustained by him? Why do we have such a hard time with that? Yeah, I know I got to use the right key. Well, guess what? To get into heaven, you got to have the right key. And the only key is Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by him. So if you're here today or you're watching and you don't have the right keys, you don't have salvation, let me ask you, what's stopping you from accepting Jesus Christ today? He's waiting and willing. He died on the cross for my sins and your sins, for all those who would accept him. You can receive salvation. You can know the truth today personally if you will accept him by simply inviting him into your life, believing that he died on the cross for your sins, and inviting him into your life, asking for forgiveness of sins, believing that he's alive, that he is the way, the truth, and the life. You don't have to have all the answers. I don't, have, I don't know all of this. There's, there's so much more I'm learning every day. So much I don't know, but I know Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. He is who he said he is. He's who the prophet said he would be. His claims is, that, is absolute. There are no other options. You either accept that or you just don't accept it at all. There's no middle ground. There's not several ways. If you believe in Jesus, you have to believe that he is the only way. He is the truth. He is the way because he is the truth. And he created life and he gives life because he has the ability to give life. It's all wrapped up in this statement. And when something is absolute, even proven with evidence, as I've shown you today, it's worth believing in and it's worth sharing and defending. So believe in it if you haven't, but if you have believed in it, share it. Share the gospel. Share the truth. Don't worry. Yeah, you may offend people. People may get angry with you for saying it, but if you really care about their souls, speak the truth. Do it in love. You know, we're not going to take this book and beat people over the head with it. That's not going to do any good. Share it in love, but don't pull any punches. Share the truth. Their souls are hanging in the balance. It's a firm foundation that our hurting world desperately needs. Desperately. In a world where nothing can be believed, where nothing is real, where two plus two does not equal four, where anybody can believe whatever they want, and it's chaos and confusion and pain and hurting, the world desperately needs the truth. Desperately needs Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for providing a way, the way, through your son, Jesus Christ. Not only can we know the truth and have salvation, but we can have confidence within that. And we can have assurance and we can have experience the purpose that you put us here for. And so I pray, Lord, if there's somebody here today who does not know you as Savior and Lord, that they would accept you today. They don't have to have all the answers. All they have to do is know that they, like all of us, have sinned and fallen short of your glory. Believe that you are who you said you are, that you are Savior, you are God, you lived you, a perfect life, you died 
as a perfect sacrifice to pay the price for their sins. All they have to do is believe that, believe that you were raised from the dead and invite you into their lives. Profess their faith in you, that you are the way, the truth, and the life. If they call on your name, Jesus, you will save them. For those of us who know you, do we really believe what we say we believe? Because it will be proven in the way that we live. We will be filled with your power and your strength to the point that it will be undeniable to the people around us. And we will be willing to share the truth with anyone we have the opportunity to share it with. Lord, we, we will not be ashamed to share the truth. Yes, we will do it in love, but we will do it unabashedly. I pray that we will live with confidence, that we will live with assurance, and that we will care about people enough to share the truth with them. Lord, we thank you for revealing the truth to us. Jesus, we thank you for giving everything so that we could live and so that we could know you. God, we thank you for loving us enough to give us the truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand for our time of commitment?